You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is back open for live shows, classes, and customized corporate workshops and events. But we also have all those things available in virtual formats. For more information, go to secondcity.com. So today's podcast is with Whitney Goodman, uh, who is the radically honest psychotherapist behind the popular Instagram account at Sit With Wit uh, and the owner of the Collaborative Counseling Center, which is a private therapy practice in Miami. Um, she has a new book called Toxic Positivity, um, and I think you're going to really enjoy this conversation. Enjoy the pod. <laughs> The Second City is a world-famous comedy theater, and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance, and the same practices that made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Executive Director of Insights and Applied Improvisation at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, seeking connections, and finding a better way. This is Getting the Yes And. Days can be counted by the money you spend. Today was just another better left unsaid. Days can be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Whitney Goodman, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you for having me. I love how you begin this book. In the introduction, you write, quote, I would bet there are three potential reasons why you picked up this book. One, you've been impacted by toxic positivity and are sick of it. Two, you don't know what toxic positivity is, but you're intrigued. And three, you have no idea how positivity could possibly be toxic, and you're determined to find out what absolute blasphemy I'm spewing in this book, end quote. <laughs> and I'm going to say I landed somewhere between two and three. That's, sure. that's, where, that's where I'm entering this conversation. But then having read the book, and as someone who's well acquainted with therapy, a good therapist doesn't ask you to run or hide from your sadness or your grief or your trauma. They sit in it with you while you process it, right? Exactly. Exactly. So tell us what, okay, let's, let's start here. What then is toxic positivity? So toxic positivity is when we use uh, a positive phrase, happiness, uh, whatever positive thing you're using to deny a feeling and demand that we put a positive spin on it. And you can do this to yourself. You can do it to other people and it is everywhere. All right. Give us, give us a couple examples. So if, if I'm, sure. if I'm going through a hard time, what, what would be an example of that? Yeah. So um, you have so much to be grateful for. Just smile. It could be worse. Um, at least X didn't happen all of these really well-intentioned pieces of advice that really, I think, just make us want to scream. In our work uh, in improvisation, uh, when we're teaching uh, and taking it in applied senses to to corporations, we talk a lot about intent and impact. Um, And and you write uh, specifically about your audience, and we know a lot about uh, being with audiences, but talk to us a little bit about the importance of that with regard to toxic positivity. 
Yes. So most people that use toxic positivity have very good intentions. They want to be helpful. Their impact, unfortunately, is rarely in line with their intentions. And I think that when we have what we have to realize when we're helping people is that our impact is more important than our intent. So we need to be impactful in a way that's beneficial for the other person and is actually helpful, not just in the way that makes us feel like a good helper. Yeah. So the example we give in our, our workshops is like, if I step on someone's foot, I go, I, I say, I'm sorry. I don't go, I didn't mean to. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And I think a lot of people are super triggered by that. It's like, oh, but I'm trying to be nice. I didn't mean to do it. And that doesn't really matter. So the, the aspect of this book that surprised me the most and, and what I want to dig into right now is you actually find a historical root in our country for this that is really disturbing as you see it travel to where we sit right now. So this goes back to Calvinism, right? Yes. Yes. So when I was researching this, I was shocked at the depths of this obsession with happiness. And it really all starts with Calvinism when the first, you know, settlers came over to the United States and they really ravaged the place, but wanted everybody to be happy and smiley. So there was this whole overhaul of religion, essentially, because that was the dominating cultural force of the time. Uh, and that spawned the New Thought Movement. And then you've got people yes. like Mary Baker Eddy and William James. And then the person that really popped out to me was uh, Norman Vincent Peale. Um, and th- this is all, this is all, well, I, did they think it was science at the time? Do we just call it pseudoscience now? Yeah. So they absolutely thought it was science at the time. And it was really um, woven in with the eugenics movement of like survival of the fittest and separating like the feeble minded from the strong. And that was all done in the name of the pursuit of happiness. So anybody that didn't fit this like white, um, able to work and be productive image was sort of deemed a threat to happiness and had to be eliminated. And the way we see that expressed in our contemporary culture is through a lot of self-help movements, right? Absolutely. So now you'll see that in Law of Attraction, The Secret, all of these really echo that same uh, message that was being put out by Norman Vincent Peale, but it's less religious today. So when we're talking about this in a work context, um, and we've talked before on on, on the podcast about this with, with different uh, scientists and authors about the need to acknowledge um, suffering at work. And when we, when we don't do that, we're sort of at our peril. Um, and you write in the book, quote, today, it's impossible to navigate business, healthcare, religion, or science without being pressured to look on the bright side. Um, I'm lucky in that I don't work in that kind of workplace, um, which is odd considering it's a comedy theater where you think everyone, but, but they're actors and they're, you know, there's a lot of drama in a little comedy theater. <laughs> theater. But, but talk to us about what, what, how this expresses itself at work. Yeah. So toxic positivity is rampant in the workplace. I think we see it in the way offices are designed today. They're very pretty and colorful uh, ping pong tables demanding that you have fun, right? And then employers really don't want to hear your feedback anymore, I find. They want people to uh, participate in what I refer to as groupthink in the book, which is really just like compliance at all costs, making sure everybody's happy on the same page and participating. And if you try to go against anything, it's like, well, you really need to have a better attitude if you want to succeed, or you're not going to get a promotion if you're so negative. And it really silences any type of criticism. 
I think this is a thing that people don't understand all the time about creativity, which is you don't want group think because that promotes uh, conformity. Uh, what, you, what we strive for is group mind, which is when mm-hmm. uh, a lot of diverse opinions are gathering together and in there coming together, they make something greater uh, than they would for any individual. Absolutely. And that's what you have to remember is that any problem that has been solved in the world came from a place of negativity that then inspired creativity, right? And the ability mm-hmm. to problem solve. Yeah. Dissent, I mean, dissent is, is good and important. And you talk about complaining and the, the, the importance there. And that made me also think about the positive aspects of gossip in terms of, uh, you know, its relationship to sort of group ethics. Um, but these are all things, they, they, this is a tension, I think, in, in most workplaces and actually most families, I'd say, as well. Absolutely. Complaining has such a bad reputation. And I, I point this out in the book that there's a big difference between somebody that's pointing out something legitimate, right? A problem versus somebody who's like, oh, I hate the coffee or like, I don't like how it smells in here. Like just pointing out little innocuous things that may not actually matter. Uh, you have a, I think almost a whole chapter talking about how uh, toxic positivity is so terrible in healthcare sim- uh, systems. Um, so t- tell us how, how, how you see that working. Yeah, this was actually really the inspiration for this book was a lot of my patients were facing this from healthcare staff that were telling them, you know, you have nothing to worry about. Uh, You need a positive attitude to beat this. I hear that a lot in cancer care. Um, There is such a demand that you be positive when you're fighting illness. And really the research shows us that it does help manage disease, but it actually has no impact on physical health improvements. So we, we developed an improvisation for caregivers program that, that we utilized when our daughter was sick. And, and the, it, was, it was less about being positive and more about being specific. So mm-hmm. what we ended up doing, we have exercises where we would share personal details so that people saw us as humans, you know, with minds and feelings rather than either just the disease. And that proved to be very effective. And I think a lot of people sort of assumed that like, there's a couple that works in a comedy theater. So of course they're like, but it's no, I mean, this was, we had really down times, but the sort of successful interactions were because we were connecting with people as our authentic human selves. And that's different than just being like, you know, buck up. A thousand percent. And I think what you're talking about is giving people an outlet Um, and encouraging them to engage with a wide variety of emotions versus just saying like, look, you're going through this and you need to be positive if you're going to beat it. Yeah. Okay. And you, you kind of list out the areas where positivity just doesn't help. And I'd love to dig into a few of these. Um, so we've already talked about, uh, uh, illness and that sort of thing. Um, but you also mentioned, um, infertility and pregnancy loss. So what, what are you thinking when you talk about that? Yes. I noticed um, while I was pregnant that if you were pregnant and you complained, um, people who struggled with infertility were always brought up as a reason to be grateful. You should be grateful that you're pregnant. A lot of people can't get pregnant. And then on the flip side, if you struggled to get pregnant and you finally did, and you're complaining about nausea or something, it's like, oh, but you really wanted this. Why are you complaining? You know, you're lucky to be pregnant. And you're mm. like, you can't win on either side. Wow. Okay. Then you also mentioned career troubles. What, what are you thinking there? Yes. So I discovered there's an entire industry dedicated to making people like positive about unemployment. 
like, um, you know, symposiums and conferences and all this stuff. And you call it like fun employment now. And there's this pressure that like, you have to find the silver lining in job loss, or even in just having a really bad boss. Um, that I think this goes back to what we were talking about, the workplace really demanding positivity at all costs. Um, you note in the book, and you, you're, this is when you're talking about the need to stop shaming yourself. You say, quote, I mastered the art of pretending at a young age, end quote. Um, what, is, what happened there? So I was always the type of kid or person that wanted everything to look good on the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm the oldest child, very much perfectionist, uh, career driven. And it wasn't until I got around other people or started working as a therapist that I was like, man, a lot of people are doing this, like just pretending all the time, like everything is okay so that they don't ruffle any feathers or bother anyone. So, I mean, the, the biggest expression of that to me is social media. And when you look at Instagram and people painting these sort of pictures and not never sharing, you know, the, the other side. And, and you write in the book, you say, quote, I realized the goal wasn't to actually be happy, but to appear happy. So we have that on steroids now, right? Absolutely. There is such a demand for that. And I think we hear all the time, all these crazy stories of families or couples or people that look so perfect. And we find out there's something totally different going on there. And it makes sense. People feel like they have to appear a certain way or they're going to get rejected. Mm. So one of the cures you have for this is aligning your values with your behavior. So I guess the first part of that is actually understanding what your values actually are, which maybe isn't as easy as some people might think. Yes. I think a lot of people think they're living in line with their values, but they're not. So a lot of people will say like, my family's the most important thing to me, but nothing they do is in alignment with that. Hmm. Um, or like, I really care about health, but that's, it's not in alignment. So I always suggest that people first really think about what is most important to you in your life. You know, what things, what qualities are most important, and then try to see how you can get your actions to align with those values. And I find like writing it down, it, like if I, if I don't write it down, I don't, I think I'm telling myself a story. Oh, writing it down is the best way I think. And you have some more concrete to reflect back to. I was also, I, I, I didn't necessarily struggle with this section of the book, but um, we've done so much work in the area of gratitude um, and, and finding the sort of positive aspects of using gratitude as a way to speak through difference. Um, it was probably harder for me to think about the negative aspects of gratitude. So, so I'd like you to talk to that because that, that, that has yeah. a lot of nuance to it. Absolutely. So gratitude, I think, has been introduced as sort of like a frontline blanket treatment for everything. Mm-hmm. And what we see in the research is that if you use gratitude for people with mental illness, psychopathology, it can actually be quite dangerous because you're usually using that in the place of something else. Um, The other time where we see it not really working is with people who are struggling with trauma, with a loss, and you're telling them, well, you should be grateful because they're in a better place now, or you should be grateful that they didn't suffer at the end. And we can kind of use gratitude as this way of like shaming someone for not recognizing the good because they're still in the thick of bad stuff. And I find that gratitude works much more effectively and is much more useful when we allow people to arrive at it in a natural way. 
Yeah, I suppose that one of the ways I've thought about this in the sort of the grief journey and the trauma journey is I've the, the times I'm finding my successful use of gratitude is when I'm allowing myself to be fully present in the moment and not sort of lingering on the bad thoughts of the past or what is not going to be in the future. And I'm not saying that's easy, but I find that to be, it's a practice. It's a, it's a, it's a skill that you can practice in terms of then being able to sort of like living with both things. And I talk to my therapist about this all the time. And my my latest phrase, and I think it is more keenly true every second we seem to be living, which is everything is terrible and everything's fantastic at the same time. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's like, I don't know if you've been on like the newspaper in the last or social media last 48 (laughs) hours, but I mean, it is a horror show. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. And what you're talking about is sort of like, it sounds like you're navigating the world and noticing things to be grateful for and acknowledging them. And that is wonderful. What I find becomes um, negative about gratitude is when someone's feeling something and they try to push that down in the name of gratitude and saying, I can't be upset about this because I have a roof over my head. That doesn't work. Yeah, yeah. You say in the book uh, also, avoidance is devoid of acceptance, and I think that's a crucial thing we're talking about right here. Which is like, there's, there's, and and this this journey is not linear. That's the other thing that I've learned over this period of time because you you know it's like different things are going to come up at different times, and 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 there's always shifting contexts. And so I think that's one of the problems we have is is that our our brains are wired in a certain way to expect like, oh no, like we're over it, you know. And it's like you're never. <laughs> over it. And it's different depending on the day and the time. Absolutely. And people tell us in certain ways that we should be over it or that there is a timeline and that can make it even more challenging. Um, How are feelings and emotions different? You write about that. Yeah. So emotions are the, the sensations that we get in the body. So like a heartbeat, racing, um, you know, fluttering in your stomach. And then the feeling is going to be the conscious realization of that. So you're going to be giving a name to it. So I might feel the symptoms of anxiety and then I'm going to say, oh, I'm going to call that anxiety and give it a name and create an awareness of that sensation. Um, I was thinking a lot about this with regard to, there was a a time when we were in the hospital with Nora and uh, a, a teenager was in the room next door. And I met the dad when we were both like heating up food in the, in the kitchen and we started exchanging. This is what you do. What parents say, <laughs> they start exchanging information. What he had said was um, his, his son had beat cancer, but now it had come back and uh, he didn't want to tell anyone and they wanted to honor that. But of course that meant he couldn't share what was going on. And there was, the, I like, I'm feeling it now about like, oh my God. Like, and so he was completely cut off and it's, I think it's important, right? It's important to share these things in terms of our own way of processing the situation. Absolutely. It reminds me of the story of the client Alex in the book that I told whose mom would never call it cancer. She would just mm-hmm. refer to it as it. And I think when we're not able to give names um, and outward expressions and connect with other people about our experience, it makes it so much harder to deal with. But not everyone too is going to want to share their story. I mean, and you, you find that right. So it's, it's really important that everyone operate in where they feel comfortable. So I, you know, I blogged openly about this for, you know, two years. Um, my wife 
didn't. I mean, and, and, is, and that was distinctly our own choices. And par- part of, I think, the way we navigated this and, and, and didn't have it destroy us was that we respected that each had their own way of dealing. Yeah. And, and when we talk about sharing and putting something out there, I think as, as with social media now, it feels like it has to be public when really you could just be sharing that with yourself or in a journal or in some other way that gives you a space to reflect on that. Of course, being an improv guy, and we should probably talk about that conversation that you and I had, <laughs> right? Oh, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, let's, let's jump into that. So we set up the podcast that we were going to do that, and we, we got each other's emails. And then I forget who made the first, like, uh, uh, but you took an improv class, right? I don't think, did I oh, take no, an improv class? Maybe someone I'm, else. No, I'm, I'm mixing you up with someone else. I'm so sorry. Yes, I'm, that's okay. I thought you were talking about our email exchange. Uh, it might have been someone on my team, maybe. Uh, yeah, no, no, no. It was something else. I'm so sorry. Uh, That's okay. No worries. I can roll with it. Okay. No, I remember who it was now. It's a person who's written this book on fun. And she uh, took an improv class and she was terrible at it and hated it and would never do it ever again. <laughs> like, that well, sounds have like a good time on the well, podcast. It's going to be great. So. <laughs> uh, uh, I want to talk about this. Um, uh, when you're talking about how to complain effectively, right? So we've already established that complaining's got a, a bad rap. Um, uh, you have a term that I really like, which is radical acceptance. What what is that? So radical acceptance was um, developed by Marsha Linehan. It's a part of DBT therapy, and really, it's just that we are accepting things as they are, as their reality. It's not that we accept it as in we like it or we don't want it to change, but we're just saying this is happening right now and I have to deal with what's happening right now, whether I like it or not. You write too in the book, quote, this is why we have to rely less on scripts when it comes to helping others and more on our compassionate curiosity. Big fan of curiosity. I think that that is a, a, a North Star that can get you through a lot of stuff. Absolutely. People always ask me like, what should I say in X situation? And I think coming back to like, how can I just make this person feel like I'm listening? Like I'm curious and I have compassion always works. And the path you, you write in the book is, is curiosity to understanding, to validation, to empathy. Can you kind of walk us through those four? Yeah. So if you're able to get curious, then you develop an understanding of something you can validate it and then develop empathy for the other person, right? So it takes you along this path of understanding. And along that, you may not agree or totally get it, but you can see a world in which it's possible for somebody to feel that way. So it strikes me, understanding those four, that again, perhaps it's not linear, that that those can become interchangeable at any different moment. They're like the levers you're playing with. For sure. And you will likely move in and out of different steps, have to go back to certain ones, depending on the situation and the person. Yeah, 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 yeah. This line uh, really hit me. You say, quote, at its core, toxic positivity is a form of gaslighting. How so? Yeah, it, it definitely is. You're telling someone what you're feeling isn't real. You shouldn't be feeling it. And I need you to change it right now. And gaslighting at its core is denial and attempting to confuse someone. Wow. 
Uh, you also very powerfully uh, cl- closed the book talking about the ways toxic positivity has been used to keep down various communities, um, acknowledging, of course, that we are two white people of a certain kind of privilege, um, that it's not we're not the ones who are necessarily most at, at risk, but it's really been used um, uh, against indigenous people, against black people. Uh, t- talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, so I mentioned the eugenics movement earlier in our conversation, and it was used heavily in that for anti-immigrant sentiments, um, racism, helping keep groups separate, and also among, you know, LGBTQ groups wanting people to pursue certain what they call happiness scripts. So it's like, okay, you can be gay, but you need to follow all these other things if you want to be happy, you got to get married, have kids, etc. cetera. Mm. Um, we see this among people with disabilities. They need to find a way to be happy and productive in spite of their illness. Um, we can't just accept people for who they are. So this has been one of the harder areas for me, especially as we started work in, in uh, academia, uh, crossing behavioral science and improvisation, a lot of our work was centering on these ideas of uh, uh, gratitude um, and, and acceptance and self-regulation and, and all, all the things that are very true in terms of making yourself sort of psychologically safe. Um, and that sometimes can be at odds with the reality of other communities. And I'll give you an example where uh, we were in a meeting the other day and, and we were making ground rules for the, for the meeting. It was a, a big project we're working on. And one of the rules that got put up was assume good intent. Um, and a young woman went, you know what, that, that can be weaponized. That term of assuming good intent um, might be used to have someone not feel like they can uh, speak up, especially if they don't have kind of status in a room. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. And I think that's that kind of goes hand in hand with toxic positivity, right? That people always want to go back to saying, well, I had good intentions when I said that, or it's, yeah. it's okay that I said that because I meant well. And we, of course, are not all starting on the same playing field here when it comes to good intentions. So what's a better way to get that sentiment across while also respecting someone's perceived lack of agency? So you're asking what's the best way to show that you had good intentions or, or what's the, what's the best way if you're trying to get everyone on the same page in a, in a positive moving forward uh, uh, area um, while also wanting to uphold the idea that, you know, this isn't be, being said to silence you. Mm-hmm. I think creating a space where people feel like they have room to speak up when something goes wrong is more important Mm -hmm. than creating a culture of like positivity or good intentions. So really creating the space of saying, we're all going to mess up. We're probably all going to say things that offend each other or are incorrect at some time. Let's make sure that we have a space here where we can talk about that and that we all are able to respond from a place of um, being open rather than defensive if somebody calls us out on that. Yeah, my friend Kim Scott, who you know, uh, wrote the book uh, uh, Radical Candor, struggles with that term today because she, she for the same things that we're talking about here, and uh, and is is you know I think she uses compassionate candor, uh, but that's that's the kind of thing that she's upholding, which is where you know we're not holding back from telling our truth or telling the truth, uh, but we're able to do that because we know we all care for each other. 
Um, and so exactly. got that, yeah, if we, that, and that's a, that's a, that, re- that requires trust and there's not a lot of trust. It's not easily accessed these days. For sure. And it takes time to build up trust. So, uh, before I ask you for your yes and story, um, one of the last lines in your book, you say, quote, if you take away one thing from this book, I hope it's this lesson. There is immense power in knowing when you need compassion and when you need a kick in the butt. Um, (laughs) So uh, how do we know? How do we know? Yeah, I think you have to constantly alternate between like validation and checking in and being like, am I, am I keeping myself stuck by over-validating? Is there something I really want to achieve here? Because you can validate yourself too much, it's possible, um, and keep yourself a little bit too safe rather than being challenged. So I think it's just constant inquiry and figuring out what's necessary for you. Which isn't easy. No. And developing trust with yourself and, and the other people around you that are pushing you. And again, lifelong work, right? This is like, like I, I don't know about you, but like I... I think I had an idea as a young person that it would get easier. Um, and when in fact it actually gets harder uh, in, because it's more nuanced. And that doesn't mean I'm like less happy now. I think I probably am more happy, but, but it's, it's like, it's more work. Yeah. It's like whack-a-mole. There's another thing to do every day. Yeah. Uh, we always close the podcast by asking our guests for a yes and story. So in the parlance of improvisation, when two people are making something out of nothing, they get nowhere by saying uh, no. Uh, they actually don't get that far by saying yes. We say, say yes and affirm and contribute in order to explore and heighten. Uh, do you have a yes and story for us? Yes. I was thinking about this and I think mine would be me starting my Instagram account. Uh, It was something I absolutely would have wanted to say no to and did want to say no to, but I said yes. And I decided I was going to do it my way and different than what I was seeing other people doing online at the time. So tell our listeners who might not know about your Instagram account. Yeah. So I'm on Instagram at sit with wit. Um, That's how I ended up doing this book was through my writing on there. And I post uh, different, you know, quotes, videos, things like that. And when I started this three years ago, this was very taboo for a therapist to be on social media sharing. And I got told by so many people older than me that this was the stupidest thing I could do. Um, And I'm glad I said yes to it. And how many followers do you have on Instagram? I think 450 something, 450,000. <laughs> yeah. That's wild. So it's worked out. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just like, and you're not like a, like, you know, as we sit here talking for the first time, uh, you, you, you don't come across as a, as a influencer, but in fact you are Thank an influencer. You. <laughs> yes. That's a compliment, uh, I think. Right. Thank you. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, the book is called Toxic Positivity. Whitney Goodman. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Getting to Yes And is produced by The Second City and WGN Radio. Our producer and editor is Ashley Byhun, and we are supported at The Second City by Mike Farinaccio and Colleen Fahey. The music you hear at the beginning and end of each podcast is by Jukebox the Ghost. If you're interested in knowing more or working with The Second City, go to www.secondcity.com or email us at works at secondcity.com.
Oh, oh, oh.